take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Matthew. And you're going to need to put a finger or be ready to turn a page. We're going to start in Matthew chapter 9 and then jump to Matthew chapter 12. So just a few pages away from each other. Uh, Matthew chapter 9, if you'll turn there. We are, of course, continuing our study in Jude with the next word that we're going to be approaching, and that is mercy. And so we come to uh, Matthew chapter 9. We'll be reading verses 1 uh, through 17 and then jumping over to chapter 12, verse 1. I'll bring out the New King James Version, as is my custom. God's word declares, So he got into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own city. Then behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. And at once, some of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemes. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Arise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, Arise. Take up your bed and go to your house. And he arose and departed to his house. Now when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God, who had given such power to men. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now it happened as Jesus sat at the, t- at the table in the house, that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard that, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment and the tear is made worse. Nor do they put new wine into old wineskins, or else the wineskins break, and the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine in new wineskins, and both are preserved. If you'll turn over to chapter 12 now, verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? Yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. We have already uh, taken into account verse 1. We've deliberately and thoroughly, not as thoroughly as I think we're capable of doing, but thoroughly enough, dealt with the facets of our identification. That if we can identify ourselves along with the recipients of this letter from Jude, the half-brother of Jesus Christ, then we recognize that the balance of it is also for us and for our benefit and also for our blessing. And so we find that uh, we are the called, the sanctified, and the preserved through the work of the Spirit of God, the Father, and the Son. And so uh, we now not only look forward to the blessings that he's going to describe in verse 2, but we also understand the warnings, that they are for us. This is not just for a group of people long ago in a faraway place, but this is for 
us in this place, that the warnings still stand, and also for the next few weeks, the blessings are still desired for us. That it is still the intention and the prayers of God's people that these things be multiplied. And in verse 2 of Jude, it's that word multiplied I want to talk about just very briefly. That is that it is to increase over your Christian walk. Not just on one occasion, but from event to event, from day to day. Not all those events are going to be fun and enjoyable. In fact, some of them are going to be downright difficult and hard and pressing. And we're going to feel like we're under God's thumb instead of held up by his hands. But the fact is, is that all of our life's experiences, this should be and is the intention of God toward you, is to increase these, not just by adding by ones or twos, but by multiplying. To increase them um, in enormous ways. This is part of the maturation process of the Christian life is that we discover that with obedience comes blessing which just motivates us to want to do more, to please him more, recognizing that you cannot out-bless God. You just can't do it. So Jude's prayer and desire for these things to be multiplied in their life um, is genuine and it applies to all those who are the called, the sanctified and the preserved. But we're also going to recognize that they are, to a degree, just like the descriptions of verse 1, require something of us. That they require us to be growing and walking and maturing in our faith. And as we're going to see in the balance of this letter, that's going to not only mean that we need to do positive things, but we also need to be attentive to the fact that there are many negative influences that can come to bear in our life that will rob us of the multiplication that God wants to have in these areas described in verse 2 as mercy, peace, and love. This morning we are going to talk about mercy. I don't know if I'll finish. Um, I told my wife last night I have a really, really short message. And I don't know if I have the guts to pull it off, to tell you the truth. I would really like to just leave you with one phrase and walk out of the room and let you sit here until you're done thinking about it. For Christ in Matthew chapter 9 had a very, very short message. His message was, learn what this means. Matthew chapter 9. You see, we think we know what mercy means. But when we come to this passage of Matthew 9, and it's verse 13 specifically, learn what this means. Christ nowhere expounds on this. We are going to look, possibly, either this week or next week, at the surrounding aspects of this simple message. Learn what this means. I, referring to God, Desire mercy and not sacrifice. The only other clarification that we have, the only other thing to understand what Christ is pointing at is his description before and after where he describes for us his desire to come and reach those who are reachable, those who have need. In verse 12, it is the ill, those who are sick, and need a physician. And in verse 13, it is those who are in sin and need repentance. That's it. That was his message. 
Learn it. Learn what that means. God desires mercy and not sacrifice. Two chapters later, three chapters later, he is going to chastise them because they didn't learn the lesson. A few events pass. Some time passes. And Christ comes in verse 7 of chapter 12 and says, If you had known what this means, you would not have condemned the guiltless. They've had some time on their own to consider his truth. Pulled out of Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. And they had full access. He's talking to the scribes. He's talking to the Pharisees, the men who are expert at the Old Testament. And he said, I told you, learn what that means. And now here we are, some time later. And granted, in a slightly different place, but the following is still there. The evidence is still lasting that he expected them. He says, why didn't you learn what I told you to learn? Because if you had done that, you would not be in a bad place right now. You would be having a whole different attitude towards my ministry and to those to whom I am ministering. In fact, you would have made yourself, instead of my opposition, you would have been the ones receiving mercy instead of now receiving condemnation. Why didn't you learn this? I told you back there, learn what this means. And you might throw your arms up in defense of these religious leaders and say, he never really told them what it meant. But if you go all the way back in the Old Testament, from the very beginning of the giving of the law, we find out that this has been a theme consistently there. I am the God, and it's in the Ten Commandments. If you've memorized them, your children are memorizing them, and we're life clubs. It's in the Ten Commandments, or did last year. It was in the Ten Commandments. That among the attributes of God, we are to recognize of why he is the only one that we are to serve is that he will show mercy to thousands. Yes, prior to that, he talks about um, making one man's sin last, infect generations, but he says, I also show mercy to thousands. See, mercy was something they should have learned. They should have been students of God's mercy. And so it wasn't a hard thing that God, Jesus Christ, told them to do. Learn this, and then we can have some discourse. Learn it. What does that mean? Well, let's go to Hosea 6.6. See its original usage. Maybe that'll help us. And I'm trying to walk you through a path that you should be walking on your own. God, Jesus Christ expected these religious leaders to do this work on their own. And yes, I was tempted just to give you a few references and walk out of the room and let you do it yourself. But someone would have said he didn't study hard enough this week. Hosea 6.6. Context of Hosea is God giving an offer. The offer in the midst of this Prophet of judgment, really, is an offer of hope with a condition. So let's go to chapter 6, verse 1, and you'll see that very quickly. Come, let us return to the Lord. That's repentance. Now you immediately start to associate why Jesus said, I've not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Because the context of Hosea 6, the whole chapter is, Israel coming to repentance. Let us return to the Lord, that is to repent, to turn and go back. For he has torn, he has judged us, but he will heal us if we return. He has stricken, but he will bind us up if we return. 
After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up that we may live in his sight if we return. Don't forget, verse 1 is the condition of all of this. Let us know, let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. His going forth is established as the morning. He will come to us like the rain, like the latter and the former rain to the earth, if we return. The condition is let us return to the Lord. We have gotten off base. We have missed the mark. We are in trouble. We are sinners and we need to repent. We are sick and we need a doctor. So let's go to the doctor. Let's return. And this is the fullest description of God's mercy. And we're going to underst- we need to understand an underlying element to all this because the first half of each of those descriptions we don't like, but they are required. They are, they are necessary for us in understanding what mercy is. Mercy is not just God overlooking all of your faults. That's what most of us think in terms of, of mercy. That all my failings God just automatically overlooks. That's really not a fair description of mercy at all. And if that's your concept of it, you haven't learned that God desires mercy and not sacrifice. Why that difference? We're going to look at that probably this morning. It goes on and says, O Ephraim, which is Israel and the northern tribes, what shall I do to you? This is now God speaking to them. The prophet says, let's return to the Lord. There's mercy waiting for us. And God comes in and says, what am I going to do with you? You're faithless. You're, you're, it's like a, the dew. It just burns off in a few hours. As soon as the sun comes up, poof, you're poof, gone. That's what your faith is like in me. And therefore I have brought judgment on you, verse 5. But then verse 6 comes as for I desire mercy and not sacrifice and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. And here for the second time in this chapter, we have found that we are to increase in the knowledge of God. So we have a twofold expectation by God. Number one, that you're going to return to him. No matter how smart you are, no matter how much you know about God, no matter how much you read the Bible or have not read the Bible or don't know about God or have never been exposed to it, God says, turn to me. Come to me. That's his offer. He has come to you with that offer. Come to me. And then, once we've done that, he has instructed us to increase our knowledge of him, come to know him, not only our information about him, but our relationship with him. These are both involved in this idea of to know in the Hebrew. Know me. Not just things about me, but know me on an intimate, personal level. And so this is the foundation of his mercy. And so when Jude says, I pray that his mercy, that mercy is multiplied to you, this is connected to the fact that you have turned to him, this is the res- and that you are increasing your knowledge of him. This is what he wants for you. Now, there's something very strong about the word mercy. And this is the underlying element that I think I probably should lay the foundation of first. Mercy has an implication. Not about the one giving mercy, but the one who is desiring mercy. If you want God's mercy in your life, you need to have the knowledge of something. And it's not about God, it's about yourself. Because mercy requires you to know that you have a need. It means that you have recognized your guilt. I'm guilty. Guilt means I deserve punishment. And hence those statements in Hosea, this is the stuff I've done to you. I have had to do those things to you because I'm a righteous judge and I am, I am holy and I cannot tolerate this among my people and I've had to judge you. But it's not capricious. You deserved it. 
You earn that judgment. You are getting what you, you're, was it reaping what you sowed? I was, was going to reverse that, sowing what you're reaping. But you're reaping what you sowed. But you don't have to. And what were they sowing? Well, if you know a little bit of the history of Israel, um, they were living in great luxury for the time. They had vacation homes. They had paneled houses. They had food in the cupboards. They had really no enemies around them at the time. Um, not seriously. God was about to raise them up because they wouldn't return. Um, but uh, they did this several times a year. They would take their little trek and do their little religious obligation and figure they had that covered and then they could go serve themselves, their money and their gods, other gods, the rest of the year. And so their claim was, well, we're faithful. We're going down there and doing the sacrifice every so often as it's required by the law. They weren't going to Jerusalem to do that because they didn't want to go into Judah to do that, because they didn't want to give any credence to them. Uh, so they had their own little place there, and they went and offered sacrifice, and they thought, certainly, how can God fault us? We are fulfilling our religious obligation. And let's just put it in modern terms, once a week. It wasn't that often, by the way, back then. Um, but once a week, I'm fulfilling my religious obligation. So how can God fault me? Well, God found plenty of fault with them. They were guilty. You see, in, in relying on their sacrifices that they brought down, they did not pay any heed to their heart's condition. They did the outward thing once a week. They accomplished that and figured God could not find them guilty. And, and it kind of was backed up by the fact that they were wealthy, they had no enemies, and they had vacation homes. I mean, God has blessed us. Well, what we find out is that that wasn't God's blessing at all. That was God's patience. And that's all it was. He was ready to lower the boom on them very shortly. And he sent them the prophets to warn them. Don't think that you, all of this can't be ripped away from you overnight. And it was. Don't think that your sacrifice is going down there once a week and fulfilling this religious token effort on the outside appeases me. That's not what I'm after. I want to see something in your life more than that. Let's go back to Matthew a little bit to see what God wants to see in your life so that he could give you mercy. Matthew chapter 5. I know we were in Matthew 9 and we're kind of all over the place um, it might seem like it, but we'll tie this all together here shortly. This is the Beatitudes that hopefully many of you have memorized, and uh, if you haven't, I'd encourage you to memorize these. Uh, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. So what does God want First of all, we found out that he's waiting for us to return so that he could go from judging you to caring for you, to bless you, to hold you, to restore you, to fix you, to help you, to save you. That's what God's waiting to do. And the condition is you need to return to him. Increase your knowledge of him, change your heart. Well, what does that look like? God wants to give you mercy. The evidence that there is really a heart change is when you become merciful. I have to become merciful and God gives me mercy? I think that's what Jesus just said. Blessed are those who are merciful for they will receive mercy. And we are about to walk in to a level of human psyche that we are generally unwilling to acknowledge. And that is that we are always forgiving ourselves and never willing to forgive others. 
If we make an error driving, we go, oh, sorry, sorry, oh, I tried to do it. But if someone else does the error in front of us driving, there is no forgiving them. We tailgate them. We, some people jump out of their vehicle with baseball bats at lights. Ah, it's bizarre, but they do that nowadays because we're just an angry bunch of people. You see, we will tolerate our own failures. We'll tolerate ourselves, and we will not extend that to anyone else. We are always merciful for ourselves. But we do not recognize the value in being merciful to others. For here's the rub. In our high-mindedness of ourselves, even in our mistakes, the reason we are so willing to forgive ourselves is because we love ourselves so much. And because we're, we never really recognize that we're really that bad. We don't have that great of a spiritual need. I'm pretty much, most of the time, a good guy. A nice person. And I have these occasional hiccups in my niceness. And so we give ourselves all the benefit of all of that perspective. And what all of that does is it denies that we are in fact sinners. That we are deceitful in our own hearts of our own condition. Because we don't recognize our needfulness, we are unwilling to acknowledge the needfulness of others. That they also are sinners who are enslaved to sin and the evil one. That they need us to extend to them the opportunity to return, to increase their knowledge of God, that they might receive mercy. You see, God desires us to be merciful, and one of the things that God was always antagonistic towards both Israel and later on Judah was the lack of social justice. Why? Because they were merciless. And that is not like God. And we are called to be like Him. And to be merciless and not to see that these people with great needs require our great love for them. They require our sacrifice for them. Not the religious thing on Sunday. Not the religious thing down at the tabernacle or the temple. But a personal sacrifice to care for their needs. To raise them up. To bring justice into their life. And if we don't recognize that because we're so involved in extending all of our mercy on ourselves, excusing ourselves to the point that we're wonderful and they're horrible people, we'll never be merciful. And so the widows, the fatherless, the poor, were maltreated in this land where God had given specific instructions of how to care for them. And yet these same people who showed no mercy to those who they could show mercy to, would come before God with religious pomp and ceremony and offer these sacrifices before him as if they were doing God a favor. Isn't God lucky I'm here offering this sacrifice today? And then on Monday morning, they go out and evict the widow. Kick the poor out of their way. Cross the street to avoid the beaten up Samaritan on the side of the road. That was Jesus' story, right? Maybe that was one of his greatest lessons on what it means that I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You're on your way to the temple or away from the temple, giving your religious obligation, and on the way home or on the way there, whichever one it is, they can't help this poor slob on the side of the road that's been beaten and robbed. That is social injustice. And it comes from a heart that is empty of mercy. 
and is the evidence that there is no, nothing for you but guilt before God and judgment. So when God says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, he is calling on us to examine the human condition, not from our prideful position, but from a humble position, from his perspective, looking down on us as one of the needy, not as us as one of the great hopes, but rather identifying ourselves with the needy. And so, all the way through here, the, the, in the Sermon on the Mount, all of these Beatitudes is all about association with the poor in spirit, associating ourselves, that once we associate ourselves with this great needy class of people, that we will extend mercy to others, and that is the evidence that God is done a work in our hearts because that is not a natural condition of man. It just isn't. We're going to look out for me and mine, me and mine. God says, no, your responsibility is for all if I've done a work in your life. And so we are called to be merciful and we come to understand mercy from God. He is the one who is extending an offer of mercy. That is, I know you are guilty, and I know you deserve my punishment, but I'm giving you an opportunity to move from guilt and punishment to being blessed, to being innocent, to being redeemed, purchased out of your sin. This is mercy. God says, I want mercy and not sacrifice. I want you to increase in the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Their purposes were that they thought that through this religious activity, they could deal with sin in their life, not recognizing that what they really need was to come before God on bended knee and bended heart and say, I have a tremendous sin problem. Oh, God, save me. I know I am guilty before you. Oh, Lord, take away my guilt in your mercy. Do not give me the punishment I deserve. But because we have forgiven ourselves so extensively that we think that we're all good people, we never go to God seeking mercy. Let alone extending it to anyone else. It is the one who has received the most mercy that should be ready to extend mercy to others. And this is just a snowball that just keeps building and building. And that's the word multiplied back in Jude. Once we have listened to the call of God and responded by repentance, we receive his mercy. That mercy moves us to show mercy to others. Instead of thinking of religious obligation, we say, well, I was a sinner. We start with that perspective of some of the songwriters. I was the greatest of sinners. Is that how start, Amazing Grace starts out? I was blind. But now I see. We're going to sing that later. I know it says grace, amazing grace, but grace and mercy are just two sides of the same coin of God's love in action. I am the worst of sinners, Paul says. How can I not be merciful to others when I have received so much mercy from God? And as I extend mercy to others, a the Bible says, blessed is the merciful, for they're going to receive more mercy. It's going to be multiplied to you. And it's going to become the norm of your life. And, and yes, I recognize that, and, and I, I've really been studying this for weeks. I've been working on this in the back of my mind, in the forefront of my mind for the last 10, 12 days. 
and I'm down here working with this, this roofer, and he made a mistake. It's going to cost some money to fix this mistake. And he said, I'll make it right, I'll make it right. I was like, you don't have to make this right. Because I've made mistakes. I'd rather show you mercy than cause you to sacrifice. You don't need to take your profit margin on this job to fix that. And I don't think he's still recovered from that. (laughs) Can't conceive of that. It's like, no, we'll find use for this wrong steel. We'll find a use for it. And if Cody can't find a use for it, I'll find a use for it. We'll pay for the difference. Maybe three weeks ago, four weeks ago, five weeks ago, I might not have done that. But for weeks now, I've been raking this over my mind because God says, learn this. God desires mercy and not sacrifice. He doesn't want the religious show. He doesn't want the outward the real evidence that God is real in your life is when it exudes out of your responses to the needs of others. Because you were a sinner, and you know how bad a sinner you are, and it's time to extend that mercy to others. Um, and that, this is what's rolled up in the instruction of God, don't judge, and which is taken way out of context for most people. But the idea is, is that I'm not the one that's going to punish you Um, God's got that well in hand. And so our responsibility here on the earth isn't to go around and and impose punishment on homosexuals, on abortionists, on uh, people that, you know, tailgate me. I know that that's pretty extreme, two different extremes, but I'm trying to get you the whole gamut here, okay? Um, It is not my job to impose punishment on them. God will take care of that. He is the judge. I'm not even the jury. I'm not the executioner. I'm none of that. I am the guilty. Yeah. I'm the guilty. I'm not the cop that arrested him. I'm not the prosecutor. I'm not the defense attorney. I'm not the jury. I'm none of that. I'm not even the stenographer. I'm not even here to write down all their sins. And remember them. I am none of that in the court. You know where I sit in the courtroom of heaven? I sit in that spot we call the defendant. I'm the guilty one. And that's why I say I need mercy. Because I'm guilty. I'm the guilty one. I have no other place in this courtroom but to sit here in a chair before a righteous judge knowing that I committed the crime. And there's ample evidence of it. (laughs) And when I look around at my fellow people, my peers around me, and whether I think I am of a higher social strata than them or lower is irrelevant because we're all sitting in the same chair in the same court. I'm over here with a whole bunch of us that are all guilty. And I will never take up those other roles in the court because they don't belong to me. All I am here is saying, Lord, be merciful. I know I'm guilty and I'm asking you to forgive me. I'm going to follow after you. I'm asking for you to bless me, though I have no right to do so. And the expectation is as we receive that kind of treatment, merciful treatment, that we are going to turn to these who, we, who are in the same condition we are and show them mercy and then it is an evidence that we really understood what happened to us and that's why mercy and the knowledge of God are linked together in Hosea. Why does God link being merciful with increasing in the knowledge of him? Because the more you know about God, the more guilty you realize you really were (laughs) 
and are, and how much mercy he's shown you, the more you realize how holy God is, the more you realize how unholy you are. Come on. If that, if you have, not a reality in your life, it's because you haven't been studying God enough. Okay? The more I find out about God, I'm like, woo, I'm in trouble. <laughs> Don't measure up. I do not measure up. I never measure up. And that means I'm guilty. I keep falling short of the mark and short of the mark. And, and it's not so much that I'm living less righteous. It's not so much that I'm sinning more, but the mark is going out farther because I'm learning who God is. The more you increase the knowledge of God, the more you realize how much of his mercy you need because you don't measure up at all. And so we are called upon to extend mercy. And that is one of the facets, the fundamental facets of Christian life and ministry. You cannot minister to people if you do not have a merciful spirit towards them built upon a humble understanding that I also was guilty. Why was Paul such a powerful minister? Because in his mind, he was the worst sinner on the planet. He received the most mercy, and so he had to extend mercy to others. And how do you show mercy to people who beat you and throw you into jail, who stone you, and then you get up and go right back into that town? How do you show mercy to them? By understanding how much mercy you have received from God. And you only get to that point when you really extend your knowledge of God and you realize, man, I am so guilty compared to him. But you see, we measure ourselves by comparing ourselves to each other. And that's called self-righteousness. Well, I'm better than so-and-so. I'm better than that class of people. I'm better than that group of people. I'm better than them. Oh, how easy it is. And that's a flaw. That's your error. The one and the only one you should be comparing yourself to is God. Are you better than him? That's our measure. Am I better than? Then I realize my guilt. Once I understand my guilt, then I come to the awe of how much mercy he's shown me. Once I get a hold of how much mercy God is showing me, I can be more merciful to others. I can extend that to them. Yes, I know they deserve to be balled out. They deserve to have the book thrown at them. They deserve all that. Absolutely. Mercy understands that. <laughs> Mercy isn't denying their guilt. Mercy is acknowledging their guilt, but that I am not the judge and the prosecutor or the jury of their guilt. I am not the executioner of the judgment against their guilt. Mercy says, I want to make a way to help. I want, to, I want to bring them out of their guilt. Bring them into righteousness, life. And when we do that, then mercy will be multiplied to us. For blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. What does God desire from your heart, from your life? He desires a heart full of mercy because it proves that you have understood him and what he has done for you through Jesus Christ. If you're meditating on what God has done for you through Jesus Christ, you cannot help but be merciful to others. And the most merciful thing you can do in their guiltiness is to tell them, there's a way to be forgiven. There is someone 
powerful enough to remove your guilt. And it's not me, and it's not any organized church, it's not any of that. It is one person, Jesus Christ, who is powerful enough to take away all of your guilt. Will you turn to him? Turn to him. Increase your knowledge of him. Not asking you to do all this religious outward show stuff. I want to know, is mercy in your heart? And for Hosea, one of the primary aspects of knowing whether you are turning to God and increase your knowledge of God is if you are merciful. Is it the only one? No, but it is an important one. And for Jude, he puts it right out there in front. And Christ obviously taught that right here, Matthew, extensively. And I think Matthew focuses on mercy more than the other gospel writers because it was at his invitation that this was the topic. Did you recognize in Matthew 9 what was going on? Matthew, the tax collector. God, Jesus Christ comes and says, come follow me. And he says, okay. <laughs> He's at the tax table. He is collecting taxes. He is actively doing his job that everybody else in the line hates. And Jesus walks by and says, hey, follow me. Sure. <laughs> I'm the guy everybody hates. This guy wants me as a disciple. That's mercy. Jesus Christ extended mercy, walking by, says, hey, follow me. You want me? You're talking to me? I'm the, you want me? I'm a tax collector. I'm considered uh, in league with the Romans. I'm a traitor to my people. You want me? Yeah, come follow me. The guilty receive mercy. He left his tax table and followed Jesus that day on. Do you think that was an important topic for Matthew and why he keeps repeating it? That was at his conversion. At his conversion experience is when Jesus says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. See, Matthew didn't have his religious T's crossed and I's dotted. He was a tax collector. I mean, he was an IRS agent. Can any of them be good? Yeah, Matthew, this was important. And as Matthew follows Jesus, he says, hey, um, all of Matthew's friends had to be what? They weren't religious people. Who are Matthew's friends? Other tax collectors and sinners, publicans. So they're like, Jesus shows our kind of people mercy? And let me just share something about, I know I was going to have a short message, but I'm just getting into this. I'm really just starting now. When we make ourselves righteous looking, uppity, we are essentially disinviting people to Christ. Not being righteous, but looking righteous. There's a difference. I hope you know the difference. Jesus Christ was willing to receive tax collectors and sinners. And he went to Matthew's house. All of Matthew's buddies come over. And Matthew had already made a decision. He left his job and followed Jesus. And what's the first thing he had to do? Hey, I just received mercy. Can we all go to my house? <laughs> I'll prepare a meal. And, and if you, it's kind of like a Zacchaeus event, okay? Same class of people. Who's going to come with Matthew? Well, he only knows a bunch of sinners. And what do they know about this Jesus? He looked at a tax collector and didn't see the sin, but saw 
an opportunity to invite them to return to me, come and know me. Because that's what's involved in the statement, follow me. Turn from what you're doing to Christ and know him intimately. Follow me. Walk with me. Live with me. Listen to me. And I will transform your life. What you were before doesn't have to be what you will be. If you'll simply take my offer, follow me. That's the offer we're taking to the world. Follow Christ. I am a sinner saved by grace, by his mercy. I'm not, but for the, (laughs) I was you. And if it weren't for the mercy of God and the grace of God and the love of God in my life, I would have the same life that you have. I would have the same family problem. I'd have the same language. I would have the same behavior. I'd have the same thoughts. I would be captured and, and controlled by all the same things. There's nothing inherently different in me than in you except what God has done. And that moves us to show mercy. When we put on the airs of religiousness and turn people off, we are doing sacrifice and not mercy. And God says, I don't want that. I want mercy not sacrifice. I want you to increase your knowledge of me, not burnt offerings. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. We all want, they will obtain mercy. We'll all want God's mercy. Or do we? The only ones who want mercy are the guilty. The only ones who need mercy are the guilty. Which is why Jesus says, I have not come to take care of the well people, but the sick people who know they need it. I'm not come to take care of righteous people, but of sinners and calling them to repentance. Because you righteous people don't think you need mercy. And woe if we enter into that camp where we think so highly of ourselves that we don't think we need the mercy of God And therefore, we think we are excused from showing mercy to others. May mercy be multiplied to you, which means that you have come to a knowledge of God to recognize how guilty you really are and you're turning every day to that God who will show you mercy. May that increase exponentially in your life.